Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Anders Erickson. I'm an assistant state public defender, and I represent the appellant in this matter, Ronnie Shaka. The issue in this case is whether Mr. Shaka forfeited his constitutional right to confrontation. More specifically, whether the state's circumstantial evidence established by a preponderance of the evidence that Mr. Shaka caused his wife to be unavailable uh, to testify at trial. Uh, Council, I want to stop you right there because I want to ask you, when you petitioned the court for review, you had a, a different issue that you wanted us to decide about whether, um, you know, somebody needed direct evidence to um, establish the forfeiture um, of the constitutional right. And um, then I was surprised to see in your brief that you conceded that circumstantial evidence could do that. And I'm wondering, you know, do we have a review-worthy issue here today? Because um, it seems we're down to a, a sufficiency of the evidence, and we did deny review on Mr. Shaka's pro se uh, brief that asked for review on sufficiency of the evidence. So can you tell me, you know, what are we still under our Rule 117 here, or should we... Does the, dismiss this case as improvidently granted? Absolutely. A, a few responses. First, when we petition for review and we ask a broader question in this case of whether uh, the state can establish forfeiture without any direct evidence of causation, we've answered that question, and the answer is sometimes, but not in this case. And even though that that issue is very spe specific legal issue, we have to apply it to the facts of the case and then determine whether, uh, how it's applied to the case, and then answer that question. This court does not grant review um, and issue advisory opinions. It applies it to the case and decides the case on its merits. Um, and that's exactly what's happened here. So the, the issue that was presented to the court is exactly what we've answered, but then applied it to the facts of the case and answered the question and, and come to the conclusion that the state's circumstantial evidence did not establish uh, causation in this case. Um, and as far as Mr. Shaka's pro se argument regarding the sufficiency of the evidence, that's a much different question than whether he forfeited his right to confrontation. Uh, sufficiency of the overall evidence would be whether the jury's verdict uh, was valid versus this threshold constitutional question of whether he uh, forfeited his constitutional right to confrontation. Uh, Mr. Shaka is requesting that this court find that the state's circumstantial evidence did not establish causation because there is not evidence that uh, Mrs. Shaka was contacted, that she was encouraged not to testify, and as the district court found, we don't know why she did not appear to testify. Because the trial court's findings violated, violated Mr. Shaka's constitutional right to confrontation, he is requesting that this court reverse his convictions and remand for a new trial. The right to confrontation is not merely a rule of evidence that protects against inadmissible hearsay. Instead, it is one of the few uh, enumerated constitutional fundamental rights that this court and the United States Supreme Court has protected. Indeed, the United States- But what, what kind of evidence is necessary to meet the standard? I mean, does the defendant have to admit that he caused the witness not to appear or can something short of the defendant's admission uh, satisfy the rule that you're advocating? Yeah, ab absolutely. It does not. Um, we do not need the defendant's admission. Uh, there could be a, as 
the cases that we've cited to from all over the country, there have been statements made to police officers from the uh, alleged victim. There has been testimony from officers saying we went to the alleged victim's house uh, and the alleged victim said that she did not want to come and testify because of X, Y, and Z. So it does not have to come from the defendant at all. So, but it does need to be direct evidence. Uh, not, not necessarily, Your Honor. There, there can be direct evidence of cause of contact, but we don't necessarily need direct evidence of why she did not appear. So if, if the sense. witness said, um, I'm not coming, the defendant's father called me last night, that's enough? I think that would be enough. I think that would establish preponderance of the evidence because in that situation, you have two things. You have one, we have evidence that there was actually contact between uh, the father and the, the witness. And then we also have a reason why. And the reason why is because of that contact. Um, so it doesn't have to be much more than that, but there has to be, I think that's a great example of, of what could establish it. So is the question before us whether there was sufficient evidence to establish by a preponderance of evidence of the uh, wrongdoing? Whether circumstantial evidence can, can establish well, you've said circumstantial evidence can establish. The in question is whether there was sufficient circumstantial evidence to establish the wrongdoing. In this case, yes. And the answer to that question is yes, sometimes circumstantial evidence could, but the circumstantial evidence in this case does not. So, so it sounds like a routine sufficiency of the evidence question echoing Justice Chudich's remarks. I don't think so, Your Honor. You know, this is a question of constitutional forfeiture. And the issue is whether the state can establish that through through the circumstantial evidence in this case. And the, and the circumstantial evidence in this case did not establish that element. Well, any sufficiency of the evidence argument has a constitutional implication. If there's not sufficient evidence, then somebody can't be convicted. I, 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 disagree. I mean, then there is something in the Constitution about due process. That's correct. But these threshold questions are looked at differently. When the threshold question has an ev is an evidentiary issue that also involves a constitutional right, that's a completely different question than a jury verdict. We look at those differently uh, with a standard of review. Uh, it's, it's not the same as whether It's preponderance. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. That, that's also correct, Your Honor. Um, but, but in addition, the standard that you're looking at, and I know there's some disagreement as to what standard this court applies, you, you review the questions regarding uh, whether the facts meet the preponderance standard de novo because it is a constitutional question, which is very different than a sufficiency analysis when you're talking about a jury's verdict. And that's the same case with Miranda cases. Uh, when any constitutional right um, is at stake, you review that differently than a jury's verdict. So what is the rule of law that you're proposing today? That when the state is attempting to establish causation uh, for a forfeiture by wrongdoing claim, the state's circumstantial evidence must create a reasonable theory that the defendant caused uh, the witness to be unavailable. And we get that uh, analysis from the civil cases that we cited to in our brief. Uh, I think it's a very straightforward analysis of a reasonableness test. And one thing the district court in this case had trouble with was figuring out how to analyze this. H how do you look at the circumstantial evidence when it's a threshold constitutional question uh, versus a sufficiency question? And by applying the, the, the the test from those civil cases, I think that's a very straightforward reasonableness test. And in this case, because there is just not enough evidence uh, of causation, uh, it did not meet that reasonableness test because there's no evidence that there was contact, there was no evidence of the reason why she did not appear to testify, and there's no evidence she was threatened. What's your assessment from the state's brief as to whether the state agrees or disagrees with the proposed rule of law that you're enunciating today? 
Well, there's a couple footnotes, I believe, in the state's brief, and that's it. So I, I believe that the state's disagreeing, um, but I don't, I'm not sure what analysis the state has put forward for this court to consider when making its decision. We'll, fi we'll find out. I guess so. Um, um, Council, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm following you totally. So is the reasonable inference standard in your brief a higher standard than the preponderance of the evidence standard? No, it, it's just the way that this court in those civil negligence cases has interpreted circumstantial evidence when applying to the preponderance evidence standard. So when it's trying to determine whether there is causation that establishes a preponderance of the evidence, how does this court look at it? And the, what this court has said is you look for a reasonable inference that is more than just consistent with the state's theory of causation. And what we have in this case is definitely uh, evidence that's consist consistent with the state's theory, but that's it. It does not rise to the level of actually creating a reasonable inference that he did cause her to be unavailable. Counsel, can, can you meet or can the state meet your the, the standard that you're articulating without testimony from the witness? Yes, I, I believe so. Um, you know, again, if, if law enforcement had gone to her house and she had, you know, not let them in, something like that, I think that that would be stronger evidence. Um, or if there were telephone calls from Mr. Shaka or the defendant to the witness that where the witness didn't say anything, I think that would also be enough. Uh, I think there are a lot of ways the state can meet the preponderance standard, um, but just that did not happen in this case. So I, I don't think that the, while there are concerns in cases, especially involving domestic violence, of having a witness have to come in and explain why she's not appearing to testify, that, that doesn't really make sense. But we're not advocating for that. Um, again, if, if there was a phone call where uh, someone called the witness and just left a, a voicemail saying, don't come to testify, I think that would be enough. It's just something more than what we have here. Um, and I think the, the cases from across the country uh, have all concluded that. So as I understand it, um, I think you're arguing that the district court unreasonably relied on multiple inferences to um, conclude that Mr. Shaka caused the unavailability of the witness. So is it always unreasonable to take more than one inferential step? I don't think this court needs to draw that line. In our brief, obviously I pointed out that there were multiple inferential steps but I think that just highlights the lack of evidence. So I don't think this court needs to say, you know, if there's more than one inferential step, then that's too much. But in this case, I do think that it is too much because of just the complete lack of evidence. Uh, so I don't think this court needs to draw any lines for future cases regarding inferential steps. It's just an easier way to articulate the lack of evidence that was presented. How important to your argument is the district court's statement that he, I think it was a him, that the court was making a leap how important is that to your argument? I think it establishes that we're in circumstantial evidence world um, and that the court did not have anything else to base its decision on uh, besides the phone calls um, and did not have any direct evidence of, the, of contact. Um, I think it's also important that the judge said that sh she did not know why uh, she did not appear to testify. So that clearly gets us into circumstantial evidence world and um, I, again supports our argument that there just is not enough besides the phone calls um, and the fact that she did not appear to testify. Uh, one other point regarding that, you know, the, the court states that uh, because jeopardy attached, the court could not continue the matter any further. And that's, that's just incorrect. 
the court had an uh, afternoon continuance, and that's it in this case, uh, to find uh, more information about where Ms. Shaka was. Uh, and the court could have continued the matter for another day, for another morning, uh, to find Mrs. Shaka and to find more information, but the court did not do that. So this idea that jeopardy had attached and you can't continue a matter for another afternoon or another morning just isn't valid. What's our scope of review on the district court's decision on how long to continue the trial? Is it abuse of discretion? Possibly, and, and our well, argument po is- Possibly. Yes, what, yes, but yes. That's, not our, that's not our basis of our argument. It just supports our conclusion of what, what could have taken place, what could the judge have di done differently. Um, I don't think that's an argument in and of itself that the judge erred somehow by uh, not continuing the matter further. Obviously, it's the judge's courtroom and the judge makes those decisions, but when we're talking about a fundamental constitutional right, uh, a further continuance, um, to find more information and more evidence regarding what's going on, I think uh, would have been appropriate in this matter. And you know, if, if we were getting to what the standard of review is to review that, I would also say that that's a legal error by saying that because jeopardy attached, the court could not continue the matter. That's that's just not valid. Uh, but again, that's not a separate argument. Uh, also, I, th I think this court's case in State v. Hansen from the early 80s is very. Um, on point and supports our argument. In, in that case, uh, there was evidence that uh, two or multiple witnesses feared the defendant. And this court said that that fear is not enough and that the fact that they did not want to testify because of fear did not establish forfeiture. Um, in this case, we don't even have evidence that she feared Ms. Shaka, Mr. Shaka. Um, I'm sorry, we had evidence of past uh, domestic abuse. And, and there's case law from the United States Supreme Court saying when that's the case, you know, you you can uh, assume that the that the person is afraid. Right. And and I think if if there was evidence of contact, if there would have been a phone call to her that we knew about, um, and she didn't appear to testify, I think it would be relevant at that point to say, well, why would somebody not want to appear? Well, if there's past domestic abuse that might be a valid reason why the person would not want to show up. So I do agree with that. But again, because we don't have that initial contact, um, I don't think that's enough. Uh, also, you know, the, the state did not present as an argument that the domestic abuse was the reason she did not show up. Um, and the district court did not make a finding that that was the reason why she did not appear. So I, uh, when we're reviewing what the district court found in the spe specific factual findings, that was not one of the findings that she made. Um, at, at this point, if, if the court doesn't have any further questions for me, I can respond to the state's argument during rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Moeller. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Kelly Moeller and I'm an assistant Hennepin County attorney representing the state in this appeal. My argument this morning will address the purpose of the forfeiture doctrine, the district court's findings of fact on forfeiture by wrongdoing, 
Forfeiture in the context of domestic violence, the standard of review, and appellant's proposed rule. And before I do any of that, um, I would just like to note that the court has a few options here. Um, in response to Justice Tudich's question about whether or not this court could decide that review is improvidently granted, I think that is absolutely uh, a decision that can be made by this court based on what was raised in the petition for review and what was conceded in the brief here. Um, this court could also determine that the district court's finding on causation is not clearly erroneous. And this court could determine that even if this reasonable test that appellant wants this court to apply is adopted, the state still has established forfeiture in this case. Looking first at the purpose of the forfeiture doctrine, this court in Wright described the forfeiture by wrongdoing doctrine as a longstanding principle that a criminal defendant may not exploit the confrontation clause to bar the statements of a witness whom the defendant himself has caused to be unavailable. And appellant's conduct in this case is exactly the type of behavior that the forfeiture doctrine is aimed at preventing. Appellant here tried to undermine the judicial process by procuring SS's silence. And before I talk about the specific facts that the district court found here, I think it's also important to note that Appellant actually benefited in this case uh, at his trial by causing SS not to appear. Defense counsel argued that she didn't show up, so the jury shouldn't convict him. And the district court did not allow any evidence of the January 2nd calls for either substantive or impeachment purposes even though those calls would have provided context to why SS was not there. They constituted an admission by a party opponent. They established appellant's consciousness of guilt. And appellant in this case actually got on the stand and testified that the calls that were subject to the domestic abuse no contact order involved someone other than SS. With so the very least, those calls on January 2nd should have been admitted as impeachment. So even with admission of SS's out-of-court statement here, in appellant's trial, he benefited from his wrongdoing, even if he ultimately wasn't successful in achieving an acquittal. Appellant has not established that the trial court's findings on forfeiture are clearly erroneous. And as this court knows, appellant is only challenging one of the four prongs on forfeiture, whether his wrongful conduct procured SS's unavailability. The district court's finding on this factor is supported by three things, the timing of the calls, the accuracy of the information that appellant provided, and the reaction uh, of those he called. And I've de described all of those facts in detail in my brief. I'd be glad to go into any of them now. If the Counsel, what about the district court's conclusion that she, Judge Meyer, said she was, um, quote, making a leap and finding there is causation and then going on? I mean, it shouldn't we be concerned about the district court's statement that it was making a leap yeah, no, Your Honor, I don't think you should be concerned by that. I think what she was referring to in saying making a leap is drawing an inference, uh, connecting the dots between appellant's conduct and the fact that the witness wasn't there. The court had found that she was a solid witness before those calls had been made. She had come and given statement to the prosecution that day. She told defense counsel she was going to appear. She knew she was still under subpoena to appear. And it wasn't until those calls were made that then she didn't, uh, didn't show up. And also the court found that appellant made the calls to people who were able to carry through with what it was that he desired. And I think one thing that I didn't um, maybe emphasize enough in my brief was the fact that 
we know that the people appellant called were actually following through on the things that appellant requested. They specifically asked appellant for his Facebook login information, and then in the course of the calls, it was evident that they were looking up, they had gotten on Facebook using his login, they were looking at SS's Facebook information, they were providing that information to the defendant, so they were following through on what appellant had asked them to do. And at one of the, I think it was the beginning of the third call, um, they, said, they said right away that they hadn't yet received a, a reply from SS, which certainly implies that they had reached out to her and were waiting for a reply. And I think this is where the domestic violence aspect of the relationship comes into play. Because even those calls by family members, um, even if they couldn't get a hold of her, calls or attempts to contact them attempts to contact her by appellant's family members could be deemed intimidating and threatening. Counsel, so in response to the Chief Justice's question, you say, well, she really meant when she said leap, um, there was a reasonable inference. That's, there, yes, there was an inference. At, at, go ahead. <laughs> so it sounds to me like the position the state's taking on what the rule of law here is, is the same as what the appellant is taking do we, do we have a dispute about what the rule of law is? Yes, Your Honor, we do have a dispute. And the state's not arguing that the court can rely on an unreasonable inference ever. I think reasonableness is built into this because the district court makes findings of fact that are reviewed for clear error. And in that review for clear error, if a finding is unreasonable, then it's most likely going to get reversed for clear error. I think what appellants articulating with this test that he wants in civil cases is just adding more, um, maybe another layer. He says it's not stronger than preponderance, but when I re read his brief, to me it was asking for a different test than a preponderance test or somehow a different test in the forfeiture of wrongdoing context. So you think we've got a real live dispute on what the rule of law applicable to this, this determination was? I think um, I think there is a dispute on whether or not we should apply some uh, cases from civil negligence standard, but I think that this court's jurisprudence on forfeiture is very well established. It's a preponderance test. There are findings of fact made by the district court. Those findings are reviewed for clear error, and then you look at that in light of his constitutional rights de novo. So I think that that is very well established and there's no reason to try to graft some sort of new requirements onto forfeiture in this case. I also wanted to um, address a couple of things about appellant's proposed rule. And appellant does seem to prefer direct evidence over circumstantial evidence. But as noted in the cases, especially those from other jurisdictions, you really aren't often going to have the, a kind of case where a witness is, who is afraid to testify is going to show up and say, I'm afraid to testify because they're threaten, threatening me. Um, and so I think that his argument also ignores the reality of how these situations involving forfeiture often arise in the middle of trial, like it did in this case. 
And the suggestion here that um, more time should have, could have been granted, um, I think that suggestion is unreasonable given what was happening here. It, the court had already granted a continuance. The state was working diligently to try to contact the victim. They had reached out to her. They had called her. Because she lived in St. Paul, they gave the information to St. Paul law enforcement to try to reach out to her. They were listening to jail calls. They were transcribing jail calls. They were recording those and getting those over to the defense and to the court. So the state was working diligently, and there was enough information that the district court had on the record before it to make a finding of forfeiture without delaying the jury any further in this case. I just also wanted to make a point that appellant's conduct here in asking others to contact SS was likely also another crime in and of itself because it appears that the domestic abuse no contact order was still in place at the time of the January 2nd calls. And the level of wrongful conduct in this case is egregious. The confrontation clause is a shield to protect a defendant's rights, but appellant was essentially trying to use it as a sword in this case. And unless this court has further questions, I would respectfully request that you um, affirm the conviction and affirm the Court of Appeals decision. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Erickson, you have 10 minutes. Thank you. Uh, as far as the petition for review issue, I, I just want to highlight that the ultimate question that we asked in our petition was, does the forfeiture by wrongdoing exception apply if there is no direct evidence establishing why the witness was unavailable to testify? The answer to that question is sometimes and not in this case. Um, I'm having a hard time understanding how we have not answered that question and how that question is not before this court when you ultimately have to decide what the legal answer is, but then apply it to the facts of the case. If we just answer the legal question and didn't determine whether the state established that element, I, it would be an advisory opinion and it wouldn't be a case in controversy. Well, you, would you acknowledge that the question at least implied that your, your client's position was you need direct evidence? In some cases, absolutely. But the, the question, if you just view the question, mm -hmm. to me it's signaling the appellant, the appellant has taken the position that you need direct evidence. That, that's the rule of law that's being proposed here. And then that turns out not to be the rule of law that you're proposing. Well, given that there needed to be direct evidence in this case to establish that Mr. Shaka caused the unavailability of the witness, I, abs I disagree. I mean, that, that is our position. In a future case, potentially, there could be a situation where they don't need direct evidence. By, by opening that door for future cases, I don't think that precludes our argument before this court. Isn't the question that you were asking the, co the court to take really, was there sufficient evidence to show by a preponderance of the evidence that there was forfeiture by wrongdoing? That's the question we get to by answering the question of whether direct or circumstantial evidence can establish causation in a forfeiture context. I mean, it's, it's exactly the same as if we do this all the time where we raise issues of statutory interpretation uh, in sufficiency cases where we ask this court to interpret a statute. This court doesn't just interpret the statute. The court then says, well, did the state prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant violated that statute? I don't see how this is any different than that context. But to me, it almost seems like you asked us to, the analogy is you asked us to interpret a statute, and then in your very first brief you said, 
oh, that interpretation of the statute is right. You know, because I thought you were going to argue that that only direct evidence can be shown, or you were going to argue that we apply the circumstantial evidence test that we do when we're looking at a at a verdict. So, and and neither of those happened in your main brief. Well, I, I don't think that by posing a question that we are stuck to one answer in responding to that question. You know, the, the, the Court of Appeals made a legal determination regarding circumstantial evidence that no court has done in Minnesota. That necessarily wasn't, the court went out on their own to do that. By petitioning that case for review and asking this court to review that determination and then answering the question and applying to the facts of the case, that's not, I'm not forfeiting or waiving any sort of argument by doing that. I mean, we, by answering the question and assisting the court in how to answer this question in future cases, I think that's, that's what this is all about. So your, your position is, is that in this case you need direct evidence? Is that what I heard Absolutely. you Absolutely. In this case, given the facts of this case, there needed to be more direct evidence to establish causation. Or, be or better circumstantial evidence. Or I mean, better there could have been there could have been evidence by the cops that they watched the father and go with a posse to the witness's house and there was an agitated conversation at the door and then after that she leaves. Right. I mean, that's circumstantial evidence. But by us arguing that there was a lack of either direct or circumstantial evidence, again, I don't think that precludes us being here this morning arguing this issue. The state needed to present, could have presented more direct evidence. They could have presented more evidence that somebody contacted her and uh, caused her to not be available. But they could still win without that evidence? No. Well, I thought that's how you just answered Justice Lillehug's question. In some future case, when there's different facts, but why in this case do you need direct evidence and not what Justice Lillehug just talked about, but in other cases you wouldn't need that? So in this case, if the state would have presented better circumstantial evidence, they could have established by a preponderance of the evidence. As, as Justice Lillehug was describing, if those facts would have been presented to the district court, I think that would have been stronger evidence that could have established preponderance. That evidence was not presented. So you don't need direct evidence in this case? It could have been either either or, but the state did not do that, and that issue is before this court, and it's raised, and we answer the legal question and then get to applying it to the facts of the case. And the bottom line is your contention is the state did not present sufficient evidence to, to establish by a preponderance of the evidence forfeiture by wrongdoing. After answering the legal question of whether only direct evidence can establish causation, maybe, then yes, the state did not establish by a preponderance of the evidence causation in this case. Uh, just a couple other things. Uh, first, this argument that uh, Mrs. Shaka was a solid witness from the beginning and then all of a sudden just dropped off and didn't uh, show up, I, I don't think that accurately describes the record. This is a case where law enforcement and the prosecutor found the initial phone calls and charged Mr. Shaka. They had never met with her prior to that. There was She was not involved with the case until she showed up the day before the trial um, and had this meeting. And that meeting was cut short because she didn't want to be there and because there, her kids were running around and it was a chaotic scene. So this idea that she was this solid witness that had been there multiple times prior to uh, the first day of trial just isn't true. And also the uh, transcript of the phone calls 
this idea that uh, they were waiting for some sort of reply from. Counsel, in some ways, doesn't that make his behavior worse? I mean, here she is a really reluctant witness, and then he's calling her family, uh, his family, to put pressure on her not to show up. I just don't think that's a point that cuts in the in the appellant's favor. I mean, overall, what the content of the phone calls isn't good. We're not saying that what he said was appropriate and that it wasn't wrongdoing. But he was trying to subvert a trial process. Absolutely, and that that establishes intent, which is one of the elements. But we need more than that. We need causation, um, and the idea that the only reason that she wouldn't have shown up was because somebody had contacted her. Our argument is that's not true, that there may have been other reasons she did not show up because she was not involved in the prosecution or the investigation and did not want to be there. I don't think the standard is to show that the only reason she didn't show up, I mean, that would be what we apply to, to verdicts. Uh, that isn't the standard that we apply here. It's the causation has to be a reasonable it's got to be preponderance, more likely than not, that she did not show up because of all this pressure that he put on her. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Our position is just, sorry, not the only reason, but was not a reasonable conclusion that he caused her based on the fact that she had appeared the day before and didn't appear the second day. I don't think that that gets us to the reasonableness and gets us to preponderance. The counsel, evidence. in fairness to the record, I don't think that's the only reason that the court relied on. It was a totality of all of the evidence. Absolutely. I mean, the, court made, the court made a lot of comments about she was there the day before, she had these kids. They sent, you know, they issued the conversation, the jail calls with the license plate, the make of the car, the Facebook conversation, calling back saying, she's blocked us, we need your login. I mean, I think it was all of that and not just the one piece of information in fairness to the record. That, that's correct. I mean, definitely based on the phone calls. I don't think there's any disagreement with that. Um, and then based on the fact that the judge said that she was so solid here yesterday and she didn't appear today. Um, one other thing, the state did not present any evidence that law enforcement from Ramsey County ever went to her apartment and attempted to make contact with her. Uh, it was just phone calls and they issued a warrant that was in place for, I think, 16 hours. Uh, so again, I, I don't think law enforcement did enough. They to alerted the roll call in the morning. We don't know that. Uh, they requested. It says it in the record that there was an alert to the roll call to the St. Paul police that morning. The, that was one of the things that was identified in the record. That's the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office contacted Ramsey County and requested that. We didn't have any information from Ramsey County or from the law enforcement of what they actually did. So we don't know if they went to her apartment. We don't know if they did anything other than receive that information and look, maybe if she's driving around town, we can stop her. Uh, I don't know if it was Ramsey County Sheriff's Office top priority in that 14 hours to locate her. So with that being said, we are requesting that this court reverse Mr. Shaka's conviction and remand for a new trial. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. Uh, we'll issue a, an opinion in due course.